James 1.1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not done. Uh, to the twelve tribes, for his first God, about abroad. Okay, how does the writer identify himself? A bondservant? Yes, he's a bondservant. One who belongs to someone else at their disposal. We'll come back to that in a minute. How else does he identify himself? I'm sorry, no. Well, how does, he identify, how does the writer identify himself? By? Obviously. Name, he says, is James. Now, that's a little complicated for us. What might we have liked to have added to that? Which James, the brother of Christ? Yeah, which James, like last name or something like that? Was there only one James in the New Testament? No. You can just answer out. You don't have to raise your hand. No. So who were some of the Jameses in the New Testament? James the apostle that was killed. James the apostle that was killed. He was the brother of John. He was killed by who? Herod. Pretty early on in Acts 12. Right, who's another James in the New Testament? James, the brother of Jesus, who's another James in the New Testament? James the Elder? Or is he still the brother of Christ? Uh, James the Less, James the son of Alphaeus, the other apostle James that we really know nothing about. Now I wonder which James was so well known by this time that he needed no other form of identification. Not James, the brother of John, because nobody writes letters after they die. Uh, so which James could he be? be? I think so. I think that would have been the famous James. You read about him quite a bit in the New Testament, Acts, Galatians, and so forth. But it's interesting then that he doesn't identify himself as the brother of Jesus, but the slave of God and of Jesus Christ. Wow, he's really changed his relationship to Jesus. He grew up with Jesus, and yet now he views himself as Jesus' a servant. And there's, a, there's a little bit of a problem with this. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what did Jesus say about that? He said, no man can do what? serve two masters. He says, I'm a servant of God and Jesus. So does he contradict what Jesus said? Jesus said, if you've seen, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Yeah, because Jesus and the Father, well, let's put it this way. Why couldn't you be a servant to two human masters? They would have conflicting Yes, one of them says do this, one of them says do that, now what do you do? You can't serve two. But that never happens with God and Jesus. What one of them wants is always what the other one wants. In fact, serving one is to serve the other, it's a package deal. So, he's a servant of God and Jesus. Who's he writing to? Yeah. 
yes, probably means the Jewish Christians living outside of Palestine. And what's the one word salutation that he uses? Greetings. Now, if it had been the Apostle Paul, what would the salutation probably have been? Grace and peace. Grace and peace from God and Jesus. Something like that. Kind of every writer has their own salutation. What's the only other letter in the New Testament that has the same one word salutation? Greetings. I'll give you a hint that will blow some of the better Bible students' minds. It's the only other letter in the New Testament written by this James. The James in Acts that he wrote when he wrote it to the churches? Yes! You gave it away. When I asked my boys that one, uh, last week in one of the classes, one of the boys immediately said, I said, you know, so which, which other letter was written? Jude! <laughs> You can turn to Acts 15. In Acts 15, there's a letter in Acts that's cited. And it's the letter they wrote to the churches saying, you don't have to keep the law. You don't need to be circumcised. And this letter starts in verse 23. The apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, who are from the Gentiles, greetings. See, that's kind of the way James writes. Back in the olden days when we used to write letters instead of email and text and all that, you'd sign your letter like maybe yours truly or sincerely or love or something like that. And pretty well, you always signed it the same way. I always sign mine sincerely because it's even a little less heavy than some of those other things. But, you know, whatever you did, that's usually what you did. Well, apparently how James does his salutation is he says greetings. Isn't that kind of cool? Comments or questions? Two to four. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Verse two is a bit strange. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Don't you just love trials? Aren't they just awesome? And all the persecutions and all the afflictions and all the difficulties, ah man, make you happy, doesn't it? Why in the world would you say count it all joy? Not just joy, but all joy when you fall into these various trials. Exactly. It's because of what it does for you. It's not that the trial in itself uh, is just really a lot of fun to go through, but it's really good what it does for you, and God is seeking to accomplish something. He's got a purpose. The end result is it's going to make you better. That's, that's what we want. Um, you know, some people, when they fall into various trials, they complain and feel sorry for themselves. That's not a good thing. Some people, when they fall into trials, they're like, okay, I'm going to cut my teeth, and I'm going to bear it. It's really not what he wants either. He wants us to realize that God is really doing something, and we really actually count it all joy because of the result. And the result is what? The, the trial tests our faith, and that produces what? In verse 3, it says it'll be patience. Patience. But here, patience, not in the sense of like, um, not getting mad at somebody who's annoying, but patience in the sense of endurance, perseverance, 
Because when you have to go through something like this, then it makes you endure. Our goal in life is not to find the maximum pleasure, but it's to learn the virtue of endurance. To be able to see that this makes, give me spiritual stamina. It makes me stronger and tougher. And the endurance leads to what? Yes, maturity. Perfection in the sense of maturity it makes you a mature person. It rounds out your holy character. Enduring is really not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is the endurance is going to make you a strong, mature, stable, tough-minded Christian. And he says, let endurance have its perfect work. Don't short-circuit the process. You know, don't, some people are always bailing out. Things get tough and they reach for some sort of a spiritual aspirin so they don't feel it. But we need it. Um, do some of you, do any of you play like organized sports of any kind? Okay, what do you play? Soccer. Soccer. Uh, for school or? Uh, park district. Park district. Uh, is it pretty competitive? Yeah, I think it's pretty competitive. Is I would it? say it's more competitive than like... Okay, so you played for a while? Well, I, this is my first time playing that, but I've played somewhere else. Okay, so did they have any practices or anything? And what did you do in the practices? Run and do drills. And they're just really a lot of fun, I imagine, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you ever sweat? A lot. Yeah. Do you ever get tired? Tired. Yeah. Hurt a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. So do you wish they didn't have those practices? Why not? Yeah, exactly. We understand that concept. We all know that. Yes, in one sense, you don't really like them. But, but you know you need them. You know that it's what it takes to become strong and tough. We want to be strong Christians. We want to be tough. We don't want to be babied. Being babied won't help. Yes? Um, I think another thing trials is it helps you learn to trust in God. Uh, a lot of times, myself included, I think we for, we lose our patience and we get mad at God when we go through trials when in reality it's God helping us become stronger and we need to trust God that he has a plan for us and everything that we do. Sure. It's good for us. I mean, what would you think? Here's a football coach. And he's got a new plan for the training of his players, high school players, for their games on Friday nights. He, he takes a bunch of uh, clients out to the uh, football practice field and puts a picture of cold lemonade beside each one. He says, now we're going to do something different in our training this year and it's really going to give us an advantage over the other teams. Because they're out there in the hot sun hitting and running and getting sore and tired and bruised up, we're going to just sit here in the lounge chairs and really try to conserve our strength. You know, so that we're really going to be fresh when we get out there on Friday night because we're not going to run, we're not going to sweat, we're not going to hurt and all that. Do you think that's going to work very well? It doesn't work very well. Why is that what we want God to do to us? 
don't we want to be strong? Then let these trials have their work. Count it all joy when it's tough. It's making you better. God's got a purpose. Don't feel sorry for yourself and don't try to figure out some way to avoid having to deal with the tough things that God has put in our path as Christians. Make sense? Comments? Yes. So it may be conditioning us to get us ready for something else we're going to have to face. Good point. And if we don't let these trials do what they're supposed to do, then how are we ever going to face those? Very good. Hi. Yes, good point. Excellent. Now there's something we need to be able to properly handle the trial by date. If you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking, but when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver, for a person with divided loyalty is unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided by between God and the world, and they are unstable in everything they do. So what do you think it is we need? Truth. Wisdom, yeah. We need the wisdom, and if we don't have it, we ask God for it. Sometimes it's good when there are things we lack because it turns us toward God, makes us see our dependence on God. And why ask God if you lack wisdom? What's God like? Just answer. He is wisdom itself. He is wisdom, and what does God like to do? He's just, he's a giving God. Notice verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives. That's kind of the way God is. God likes to give. And so we turn to him when we're in need. To whom does God give? Does he say in verse 5? To all. Do you know anybody in the Bible who ever asked wisdom from God and he got it? Solomon. Remember that story? God came to him in a dream said, ask anything you want to. Solomon says, I really need wisdom to lead the people. So he asked for wisdom. Do you wish God would do that to you? Come to you some night and say, I'll give you anything you ask for. Well, you know, that's what it says in the New Testament over and over again. Ask whatever you will and God will give it to you. Now, he's not saying by that, if it's going to be bad for you, God will give it to you. If God would give us things that would be bad for us if we ask, we would none of us have the courage to ask. He'll do it according to his will, but we have that same promise. It's not just Solomon who got wisdom, we will too. Maybe it's, it's um, the whole, the whole book of Everything we read in the Bible is supposed to be unified. And I mean, we have to have wisdom to understand that trials are a blessing. Because without tri- without wisdom, we're going to see trials as the world sees trials. But with wisdom, we'll understand that we're growing. Wisdom just really puts them in perspective for us, doesn't it? So we ask God. Here's the God who's a giving God, gives to all. And then if you've got the New American Standard, 
what's the adverb that describes how God gives in verse 5? He gives generously. What does the word generously mean? Yeah, he's happy to do it, and he gives abundantly, openly. I like a lot. <laughs> you know, God gives a lot. And it's really interesting to see that in examples in God, because God often answers far beyond man's request. For example, when Solomon asked for wisdom, what did God give him? Wisdom and riches and power and a long life, etc. He's not the only one. Remember when Jacob was fleeing from Esau, didn't have anything in a dream at night, he asked God for food and clothing for the journey. Um, and, and when he came back 20 years later, what did he have? Big family, lots of livestock, two companies, he says in Genesis 32. He asked for food and clothes. Look what God gave him. Abraham, what was the one thing Abraham wanted from God? A son, and what did he end up getting? <laughs> Descendants that were as many as the stars of the sky. Uh, what about Saul when he came to Samuel the prophet? What was he asking for? Lost donkeys. And what did Samuel promise him? A kingdom. That's pretty good. You know, you come out looking for donkeys and you get a kingdom. The prodigal son, when he comes back home, what's he seeking? Just to be a slave. What does he get? Wow, sonship, the calf, the robe, the ring, the shoes. Do you see how God gives generously? The, the parable Jesus teaches in Matthew 18 about the guy who you owed a, a zillion trillion dollars to that king, a, a just ridiculous amount. And you remember what he came asking the king for? Ask time to be able to, to, to repay. Yeah, right. As if time's going to help with that kind of a debt. But he asked for time to repay. Remember what the king did? Canceled the debt. And the king, of course, represents God. So what we're seeing over and over again is God is an extremely generously giving God. And he also says, what else in verse 5? He gives without reproach. Do you understand what that means? He doesn't have a scratch my back and scratch yours out too. Yeah, he doesn't humiliate you when you ask. Have you ever asked somebody for something and they gave it to you, but their attitude when they gave it to you made you think, I will never ask them one more thing. <laughs> you know, because they made you feel so bad for asking. God is not like that. It's amazing the generosity and the attitude of God. So ask for wisdom and he'll give it to you. However, is there a condition on what we must be like to ask? What does he say? Ask in faith. Now think about what it means to ask in faith. Partially that means faith comes by hearing the word of God. We need to ask the things God reveals we should ask for. But also faith means trusting God, depending on God. You know, some of times we don't trust God very much. We more trust and depend on ourselves or trust and depend on the world. 
and the person who's not really trusting God, now God's not going to give to him. In fact, James, James loves illustrations from the natural world. He sees God all over the place. And, and spiritual lessons all over the place. What does he compare the doubter to in verse 6? Being tossed like a wave of the sea. What's a wave like? Up and down. Up and down. Here's the doubter who's unsteady, unstable, always shifting. Doubting will make you spiritually seasick. You're always back and forth. Yeah, I believe. No, I don't. Yeah, I'll trust God. No, I want the world. Yeah, I'll do what God says. No, I want to do what I want. Guy who's just back and forth, up and down. You know, that guy, well, look what he says in verse 7. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. I mean, God is not going to give anything to Mr. Facing both ways. We've got to decide where our allegiance lies and make a commitment and stick with it. That's what God wants. He calls him in verse 8 a what? Double-minded man. He's a walking civil war. You know, he wants the Lord and he wants the world. He wants the Lord and he wants himself. He can't figure out what he wants. He's always divided. He's never committing. And it's not just his prayer life that suffers. End of verse 8, he's unstable in all his ways. It comes out in every area of his life. He doesn't have commitment. He doesn't have stability. We've got to have that absolute commitment. It's the Lord. The Lord alone. No questions asked. If we are a man who is committed to God, and we can ask and know that God is the generous giving God who will not rebuke you for asking. Comments and questions for your sake. 9 to 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Okay. Now maybe one of the trials is poverty. We see that several times in the book. How should the poor Christian look at things? Yes. He rejoices in the exalted position he has before God. He doesn't really worry too much about not having so much materially. How should the rich Christian look at things? Yes. He rejoices that God has humbled him and made him realize that his riches won't last long. Riches have about the same enduring uh, power as a soap bubble. You know, just touch them and they're gone. Look at what he says in 11. Sun rises, grass withers, flower falls, beauty destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. He'll be right in the middle of it. It's over. Don't count on riches. Comments? That's kind of a theme of James. We'll come back to it. 12 sums up what he said so far. Okay, so you need to persevere under trial and you get your reward. But now, the word trial, 
In the original language, it had a double meaning. It also meant temptation. And sometimes trials can become temptations for us, depending on how we respond to them. And so he wants to look at that angle of the trials, 13 to 15. And remember, when you are being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sin. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Uh, very important. Who, where does the temptation not come from? It absolutely does not come from God, because God is not even temptable. Evil doesn't have any appeal to God. God never tempts. Now, we like to shift the blame. You know, we like to think it's somewhere else that the temptation comes from. But when we're tempted in the trial, what's the true source of that temptation? Our own evil desires within us. And it's those evil desires, if we let them grow and continue, what will they lead to? They'll act and they'll lead to sin. And what will sin give birth to? Death. We're seeing the three generations here. The grandmother's the sinful desire, the lust. The mother's the sin and the daughter's death. And that's what's going to happen. It's destructive. And, and you think about with sin. Sin always gives you the best first. The afterward is always worse. <laughs> you soon exhaust whatever little pleasure sin will give you and then it's all bad from there on out. You can't commit the sin and expect the sin not to produce death. That's sort of the inevitable progress of things. So what we learn from this is that we need to nip this process in the bud. We've got to change those evil desires and we must not allow them to lead us into sin. I talk to guys a lot. I don't talk to girls quite as much. But, but with guys, I hear guys sometimes say, well, you know, I did everything right, and I still fell into sin. I read my Bible today. I said my prayers today. I did this and that, and I don't know what happened. The sin just, just, it just, it just, you know, just got me. You know, where, where did I go wrong? You know what? Why do we sin? Because we want to. Now, you can say all the prayers you want to say. And you can read all the chapters you want to read. We do need to do those things. We'll talk about that a little more later. But nothing will keep you from sinning if you're bound and determined you want to. we got to change our want to. And we got to be willing to resist our want to. Basically, when I want to do the wrong thing and I let that go, I'll, it'll lead me right to doing the wrong thing. And that'll kill me. That's the process. Lust, sin, death, spiritual LSD. So, all right. Questions or comments? Two fifteen. <laughs> That's bold, buddy. Um, the whole oh, I read my Bible today. I did this. I did that. It shouldn't be a checklist to you. It should be something that you want to do because you want to do what God wants you to do. That's right, for sure. 
Well, we're still looking at the idea God absolutely will not try to tempt you or get you to do wrong. So, 16 to 18. Not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will be brought us forth by the word of the truth, that we should be the kind of first fruits of his creatures. I don't be deceived. God gives every good and perfect gift. That's the kind of gifts he gives. God never gives evil things. God never changes. He never varies. God doesn't have phases. He doesn't rise and set. His character is totally constant, dependable, trustworthy. So God never tempts anybody. God is not like that. He gives good gifts. Now you might think about how we are supposed to be like God. The more changeable you are, the less you are like God. The more unstable the more fluctuating you are, the less you're like God. Our goal is to be firmly fixed and steady in doing the right thing, just like God always gives good gifts. Now here's an example in verse 18, and it's a contrast with verse 15. In verse 15, what does sin bring forth? Death. In 18, what does God bring forth? Brings us forth to life. Sin gives birth to death. God gives us birth to a new life. We're God's special people. That the verb bring forth is only used in those two verses in the New Testament. And it shows you how different God is from sin. Sin brings forth death. God brings us forth to new life. He always gives good gifts. Comments or questions? I'm still trying to figure out how to outline James, but it seems to me like this is the first section then. Be joyful in trials because trials will make you mature. You need wisdom though to deal with them properly. Ask that of God. Poverty is one of the trials. You need to look at poverty and riches correctly, but don't let the trial be a temptation. God's not the source of the temptation. That comes from your evil desires that leads to sin that brings forth death. But God always gives good gifts and he brings you forth to a new life. I think that's the summary of the first 18 verses. Comments or questions on that? All right, next section seems to be kind of a summary of how we ought to respond to God. Maybe a summary of true religion if we understand religion as our service to God. So 19 and 20. Admonitions. We should be quick to hear. Hear what? I think primarily God's word. We really need to have a real eagerness, a, 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 a yearning for God's word and be excited about it. And we certainly need to hear it before we speak it. Because you can't speak accurately what you don't know well. But I want to I try to encourage you to really eagerly seek 
the Word of God, be eager for it. You know, last week, the 90 guys we had, you know, that's one of the things, uh, one of the, one of the, some of you know him, and uh, some of these lessons may be taught a little bit more in detail later on this week in some of the studies that you'll have, but Tom Holland does what he calls an aggressive Bible reading program, and it's really cool, really amazing, because I think a lot of times, we do a little bit of Bible reading, we think we're doing good. Well, Tom lives in Mississippi, at the church where he is, they have an aggressive Bible reading program. Most of the members, I think, participate in this. I don't know what it is for this year, but for last year, they were reading the Gospel of John every week, the book of Leviticus every month, and the Bible in a year. And Tom really encourages people, read out loud, and really think about it when you read it. He, he has used the Gospel of Luke for years in teaching people. I was a little surprised by this. But you know what? He was teaching Luke 3 and 4 in my, in my camp last week. He said he read Luke 40 more times in preparation for teaching. If we just had so much zeal and yearning and love for God's word. Can we do that much? We just want to read it, read it, read it, read it, read it, and just kept loving it and seeking it. Why do we love God's word so much? One reason. Because we love God. Yes, it's God's word, and we love God. You know, if it was somebody else's word, we wouldn't love it like that because we don't love anybody else like we love God. Tom always uses the illustration, which is way out of date. But back in his day, he's older than I am, he was dating a Chilean woman that he married. And they communicated by real letters. Have you ever seen a real letter? Uh, you know, and uh, so when he get one of her letters, oh, he just cherished it. You know, they could use the phone even back in my generation very much because long distance expensive. Can you imagine the chili? It was way more expensive back then, really. Um, and so he'd get a letter. He said, oh, he'd just read that letter. He'd read, read it. He'd reread it. He'd read it front to back. He'd read, read it back to front. You know, he'd take his dictionary and look up even words he knew just so he could get more out of it and learn it more. You know, it's just like you get a letter from somebody you love and you don't get a letter every day from them. You just want every bit of meaning out of that letter you can because you love the person. If we love God that much, we would just love his word. We just couldn't get enough of it. So we're quick to hear, and then what's the next thing? Slow to speak. Sometimes we struggle with that, but we need to be slow to speak God's word and really slow to speak other things. We're kind of in this era where we are supposed to just express our feelings. Well, there are a lot of times not to express our feelings. And then we're, the third principle is to be slow to anger. Sometimes we feel like anger is justified, but he says the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. When you try to defend the truth with anger, it's not a good thing. You know, anger does not lead to the righteousness of God. You know when you get the most angry usually? When you feel the most guilty. 
you start looking. When do, when do you get more tense and more irritable? When you know you've done wrong. A lot of times our anger is just a dead giveaway that we've done something wrong. It's about like having chocolate all over your face or whatever. Alright, comments or questions? Lauren. This is uh, another fact about Tom Holland. He told me the story once about, I think it was a girl he met in Chile. She copied the Bible by hand, and it took her two years. But whenever she smudged or anything, she ripped out the entire chapter of that Bible and rewrote it. And it's a beautiful, beautiful copy. I think it might just be the New Testament. It's awesome. Tom encourages the guys pick a book out in the Bible and write it down. I uh, verse 20 really reminds me of um, Isaiah 55 and verse 6. God, my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways. And if you can't expect our natural gut reaction to be angry, you're going to answer quickly or out of anger to be the right way. We're exactly right. To do something like if God expects us to be able to make because He is the result. Exactly. Um, going along with when you defend what you believe or if you defend God's word with anger that especially to someone who doesn't believe what you believe when you try and teach them through anger it, it causes them to not want to hear about it it causes them to not want to believe you're right yeah good point yes. that is true but that's where he speaks here of the anger of man man there is an anger of God, but for every verse that speaks of that, there's probably 20 that speaks of human anger. Mostly, that's what we, we experience, but you're right. Does the anger have anything to do, like, the other ones we're talking also about, like, quick to hear God's word, even though you need to quick to hear everything else, and so to speak, God's word, even though that applies to everything else, but what does... Maybe angry defense of God's word, and angry yeah. when we're trying to correct people and so forth, yeah. perhaps. Uh, we'll see more of that also later in the book. They had a lot of tensions and divisions driving them. Yeah. I'd say also slow to get angry when you're being corrected by someone. Who's Good point. Right. Yeah, great point. Definitely. Talks about in the next section how to receive the word, 21 to 25. that's such a big principle. You can't receive the word well if you've still got sin in your life. Can you get, is there anything, are there any big things that could kill you? Say yes. 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 What are some big things that could kill you? 
physically? Yeah. Explosion struck. <laughs> Thank you for being the first class so far out of six now that didn't say bear first. Explosion <laughs> struck, bear, what else? Chainsaw. Gun, chainsaw. One of those dumpsters that crush things. Oh yeah, that would, that would certainly do it. How about tornadoes and hurricanes? Are there any small things that could kill you? Fly, mice, poison, spiders. Yeah. yeah. How about germs, bacteria, viri? Viruses. Viri always sounds a little Those are little things that could kill you. What do we work on? Getting rid of just the big sins? The little ones will kill us too. He wants all of them. Isn't that what he says in verse 21? Get rid of all the sin. And then how do you receive the word in verse 21? After you get rid of the sin, you receive it in meekness, humility, be moldable, teachable, submissive. And then have the word how in verse 21? Implanted. It's got to go deep inside of you so that it'll save your soul. And our goal is not just to gratify the body, but is to save the soul. And then he says, be doers of the word. Is there a difference between doing the word and being a doer of the word? Well, well, do the word just means you do some things, but being a doer of it means that's your habitual nature. You're the kind of person that when you come to the word, you're a doer. You, in fact, look for things to do in the word. Every time you read, think, okay, I'm a doer, so what kind of, what, what, is that, what does this mean for my life, for my behavior, this passage? And then he talks about the word being like a mirror. Because what do you do with the word? Well, you really study it carefully, and it will show you what you really like. How many of you look at a mirror every day? How many of you enjoy it? No, I do not. <laughs> Try to avoid it. In fact, one time, I, one of the most horrible experiences of my life, they videotaped one of my sermons about 25 years ago, and I watched it for about five minutes. If I'd have watched it for another five, I'd have never preached again. It was horrible. So, uh, some of us don't enjoy mirrors, and some of us don't enjoy this mirror. And so we kind of avoid the Bible because it shows us some things we didn't want to see. When you try to shy away from the scriptures, just stop and look at it. It's probably, probably the reason is it's, it's revealing some things that are pretty ugly that you're trying to avoid. All right, that's as far as we can go today with our time. But thank you for your attention, really good attention, your comments. Look forward to tomorrow.